Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Rob Strobel. Rob is the president at Lisco Contracting. Lisco is one of the top commercial specialty contractors in the US. Has revenues of 800 million and has thousands of employees. Rob grew up in a small town in Indiana and was in the army after high school and served during Desert Storm. He played football in college and started his career in the sporting goods industry. He's married and has three kids. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Glad to join. So I saw that, I think I was listening to another podcast. You're, you're heavily into triathlons. How's that? So outside of work, I do uh, triathlons. I don't know if I can show you these up here on the screen. I've got some hey. Ironman accomplishments. So I have a run several half and full Ironman competitions. I was uh, at one time uh, all-world athlete, so the top 5% of my age group wide. So, yeah, right now I'm focusing mainly on uh, cycling. So this year, a couple of races have gotten moved, but I'm registered for Dirty Kansas, which is a 206-mile gravel race. And one of the toughest mountain bike races in the world, La Ruta, Costa Rica. So in November, hopefully, I'll be competing in uh, Costa Rica for a three-day stage race from coast to coast in Costa Rica, 430 kilometers, 4,000 foot of climbing. So it should be interesting. Well, I remember I did a half marathon. I did a marathon, and I looked at triathlon. I go, I went, no, I can't do it. When did you start that sort of doing those uh, ultra-endurance sports? So I've kind of done different types and kind of put it all together to triathlons, but I was in the service when I was younger and then played college football. So always have been doing some running and started competitive cycling, uh, mountain bike racing, and then road bike riding and racing and cycle cross, and then kind of put that all together. My CFO is a big swimmer. So he got me in the pool. And once I figured I could swim and bike and run, we, we kind of put it together. Awesome. And I know, uh, I think you started your career in the sports field, sports career. Yeah. So after college, it's in the mid, early to mid nineties, I got in the sporting goods business. And at that time, the sporting goods business was going through a lot of change. So the finish line and foot locker, jumbo sports, big box sporting goods stores were coming out. And for a mom and pop sporting goods store, athletic shoes or gym shoes were 60% of the revenue. So it was a large portion of the revenue, which was just decimated. It went away. So finish line, Foot Locker were selling shoes cheaper than we could buy them for. So we put together road sales or team sales programs and started acquiring mom and pop sporting goods stores throughout the Midwest and putting in back in business the owners of these businesses that were really decimated as salespeople to high schools, colleges, little leagues, and created sales programs for them with products, so ride helmets, sports bells, different types of monogrammed or logoed or numbered apparel and put them back in business. And, and we grew that business throughout the Midwest and then sold it. So, Wow. 
Wow, sounds like a, a big operation. Did you have that knowledge or did you partner with a business or? Yeah, I partnered with a family, not my family, but a family that had a small sporting goods business in Richmond, Indiana. The, the Kessler Sporting Goods was the name of the company. And, and we kind of took that model and, and, and developed that team model and then replicated it and sold it. When, when I left there, I went to Deloitte and Touche on the consulting side. So I spent several years in management consulting, a myriad of different types of businesses from steel businesses to dot-com was at the time. So e-commerce distribution also had some opportunities in construction. And that's how I kind of ended up at Lithco was a family that had a couple businesses in in the commercial concrete construction space and had some challenges they were dealing with and called me out out actually as a consultant. So I spent a couple years consulting Lithco. At the time, there were two different parts to Lithco. There was a restoration business and a new construction business. And the founder was really passionate about the concrete restoration, not so passionate about the new construction arm. So we ended up splitting the businesses, putting the ownership of of Lithco, as it's known today, in in a series of trusts for the benefit of the kids who never really entered the business. And then I came on board full time to run Lithco, the concrete, commercial concrete contracting business. And then we had spun off the restoration business and the founder stayed with that business. What was the scale of the operation at the time? The, the part that was left was probably a $40 million operation. So new construction, just to explain a little bit about what Lithco is and what we do. You know, we're a, we developed this strategy when I was consulting with the co-workers that were here at the time. And we created a town-based middle market commercial concrete construction business. So we, we don't make the concrete. You think about the ready mix trucks driving down the road. We purchase from them and then we construct with concrete. So we build hospitals, parking garages, warehouses, manufacturing facilities, condos, those types of buildings out of concrete. About 50% of our work is on grade. So slab type work, warehouse, retail, manufacturing. And 50% of our work is structural in nature. So at the, the building, the structure of the building is actually concrete, based on a parking garage or a hospital or something like that. So at the time, we were about a $40 million company with two locations, one in Cincinnati and one in Columbus. And we developed this town-based middle market strategy, primarily focused around talent. One of the things in, in commercial construction is really hard on the family. It can be a very destructive business when Folks are traveling and on the road six months out of the year and away from the family and get in lots of, lots of trouble out on the road. So we developed a business model that was intended to have our folks home every night to kind of lean into the family element of this business and create a model that created continuity within a hundred mile radius of a town. So we call those Bergs, business units running great, B-U-R-G, hundred mile radius about 150 to 200 co-workers doing on average 50, $60 million a year. We now have 17 of those locations. So over the last 19 years, we've moved from two to 17 locations and from 40 million to in excess of 800 million in, in revenue, all just replicating what we developed back then in this town-based model and replicating that town after town after town. Wow. Now, what allowed you to uh, re- replicate it? 
you know, I think a lot of things attracted people to this. So the idea of staying at home, the idea of, of being part of a family, not only their family, but the, the business unit as a family, and then developing processes. So we've put in place processes that we call the pre-construction execution process, the project execution process, how we go about identifying, targeting, and securing work consistently, and how we go about planning and executing work consistently. So we put those processes in place. We've implemented information technology. So we've heavily invested in technology so that we like to think of ourselves as the top golf of concrete construction. A lot of construction companies ask their folks to go out there and hit the golf ball every day. They don't show them where it goes. How motivating would it be to stay there and hit a bucket of balls, but you can't see where the ball goes? That's basically what people ask their coworkers to do around, are they being efficient? Are they being productive? Are they making money on projects? What we like to do is have daily time and quantity. So we want to know what our target is every day for every crew, and then have real-time feedback about the hours and quantities achieved so that when we hit the ball, we knew we choose a seven iron. We knew that we wanted that to go 160 yards, and we indeed used a seven iron and got that kind of distance. So we have implemented technology via daily time and quantity capture where people take their budgeted amount and their actual amount on a daily basis and know if they're winning or losing or not. So I think what's helped us to replicate is being consistent around these processes, creating, because we haven't changed our business model, we're focused in middle market of concrete construction. So we don't do something different. We just do something in a different place. So we take what we've learned in Cincinnati and Columbus, and we added Kansas City and Tulsa and Indianapolis and Oklahoma City. We're through the Carolinas and, and Raleigh and Charlotte and Charleston and Greenville through the Northeast and, and out West. And we've just continued to replicate what we do town to town to town. We've also leaned heavily into campus recruiting to where we bring young folks into the organization and attach them to our business and, and engage them in a way to immediately be part of the team and understanding this business. And we'll recruit anywhere from 75 to 100 campus kids a year and have done that for many years. And we do that with the intent of where we want them to go. So we've been recruiting out of Texas. We've been recruiting out of the Southeast. We've been recruiting out of the mountain states because we know we want to continue to expand in those areas. We bring them into our existing bergs, teach them our processes and approach, and then hopefully grow and expand through them. Nice. Josh, so for these uh, metrics you're talking about, that you're, you're not talking about open book management. You're talking about key indicators, scorecard metrics that you share with your team members? Yeah, so we share all of our information with our project team. So unlike a lot of companies who hold that information very close and are worried about their team knowing if they're, how much money they're making or not, we're very proactive. We provide the entire estimate for that job, all the materials, uh, pricing, our, all of our costs to the project team, and we engage them through the project execution process to plan that work and to create their own budget, their own targets. And we have historic data across all different types of our projects that they can compare, create their own plan to execute. So for example, linear foot of strip footings, 
inches of columns or square foot of formed wall, whatever the metric is, they create budgets to those. And then we quantity in that time and give them daily feedback on how they're doing against those targets. Well, now I think you have some sort of leadership process or sort of, uh, I guess, core sort of thing that you do. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, we call it a methodology. It's an approach. How? So a lot of folks spend a lot of time around these terms, the terms of leadership, management, and supervision. If you Google search any one of those terms, there's 600,000 unique definitions of leadership or management or supervision. Some companies believe there's hierarchy to it. Some companies believe that leadership is on top and management's in the middle and supervision is down below. For us, we believe that leadership, management, and supervision are all three equal parts of every leader's role. So no different for me as the CEO than our project lead on the job. The difference is scope. My scope is indeed different than the project lead scope. But that project lead that is running that project has the responsibility to lead, manage, and supervise. So to drill into what we mean by those terms, leadership is about understanding the situation and and understanding the needs of the stakeholders associated to that situation and inspiring them to a common goal. Management is the exercise of organizing your resources in a way, information, tools, processes, talent, in a way to accomplish a goal. So the, man- the exercise of management is organizing yourself. And then supervision is the closed loop part of the system. Supervision for us says you have to articulate the expectations to each individual that you set up in your management team. You have to confirm that understanding. So supervision isn't just dictating something to somebody, articulating the expectation, confirming the understanding, and then observing work, literally supervising watching the outcomes and influencing coaching and developing real time. So it doesn't matter if it's my role as the CEO. I don't just come up with leadership ideas or strategies and then expect management or others to implement it. I need to be responsible for setting and casting that clarity and vision and direction. I need to be responsible for creating an effective management scheme and organizing my resources, tools, information, and talent and actually supervising that that gets done. And that how, that methodology, we believe is in every level of the organization. So we believe those are all equal parts of each leader's role and responsibility. Hmm. Now, did, did this sort of come out of uh, one sort of thing that you saw in a company, or did you kind of have to kind of create this yourself, this methodology? Yeah, you know, we spent a lot of years focused on the the what's, the processes, the information, the tools. If it's on a project, we have concrete logs and steel logs and formwork logs, and we have daily job cost reports. We have a lot of information and processes. Over the years, learned that there's a, there's a how of interaction. There's this approach that we at Lithgo value. So we collectively in our leadership team came up with defining these they mean for us. Because I think if you search leadership or management or supervision, there's lots of different angles on what these words mean. So I think the thing that's most important is we need a collective way for this to mean something to us. So we have taken these terms and some may argue that we've used them inappropriately. We would argue we've got the correct 
position, uh, but we've created them and defined them for ourselves. Yeah. So when you're, you've been growing this company, I, what's, what's been your biggest obstacle as you were trying to put this all together and, and to grow out to different regions? Yeah, great question. It's the same 18 years ago as it is today and probably <laughs> will be 10 years from now, and that's talent. Talent is the, the biggest constraint. There have been economic cycles. We went through 2002, went through 2008. We're going through cycles right now. But talent is the biggest constraint year in and year out over time. And, and, it's, and as you're growing at a rate of over 20% a year for almost 20 years, that the complexity of talent continues to multiply because now we have 17 locations. We need regional leadership to work with those birds. When we were three, four, five birds, we didn't need regional leadership. Company leadership could interact with five or six birds. Now we have three different regions with levels of leadership that we need to interact with regions that interact with company leadership. So that constraint of talent, and, and then just numerically, when you're growing 20% a year and you're 800 million, that's $160 million worth of growth in a given year. So just the sheer number of people that you need at all levels in the organization to continue that kind of growth, talent is, the, is certainly the biggest constraint. And when you're doing it in an industry where it hasn't been done before, we're the second largest concrete contractor in the United States. The only company that's larger than us, their average size job is 10x our average size job. We do big through lots of what we consider smaller jobs or an average of under $3 million $3 million projects. So we have over 300 projects on our WIP, on our working process schedule at any one time. So just the sheer number of projects we got, have going on, the sheer numbers of leadership that we have, we believe that inherently makes the higher quality and, and more volume of leadership than anyone in the country due to the numbers of locations and the scope and scale that we accomplish this at. So talent's a challenge. Now, obviously, you have core values that you have to sort of push out to the organization or to defend. How does that work for you? Yeah, this is a, an interesting topic, and whether it be core values or culture or however you kind of get to these, the essence of these terms. And I know there's a lot of organizations that start with label on the wall, here's our core values, or here's our culture listed out. We would believe that culture is, is manifested by consistent actions. So consistent actions create a behavior. If you have a group of people with a consistent behavior, then you have a culture. So rewind, you gotta have, your toes and tongues have to match, or what are your actions that your leadership takes consistently every day? Because each leader, if they do that consistently every day, then they have a behavior. If you're talking about, if I have a behavior of working out, I look at what's that mean? I consistently work out, I have a training plan, I do this consistently, then I can say I have that behavior. If I have a group of people with the same behavior, now I can actually say I have a culture. And actually, toes and tongues will meet at culture, irrespective of what it says on the, on the wall. So many times, these items on the wall, when you get down to the actions, do they really represent a consistent set of actions that create a behavior and a group of people with the same behavior that exemplify that culture? We like to think about it from the ground up. 
So when we talk about what is our culture, we talk about engaging teams with information, tools, processes, pre-construction, project execution process, information, engaging people and expecting them to deliver their role and responsibility of that. So their management scheme for their role to deliver what's their plan to execute. It doesn't matter if it's a project or a business unit or a region. We're engaging you with the information, tools, and processes in a way for you to deliver your plan. And then to walk that out with your team and supervise that that happens. So when we think about our culture, we like to think about a culture of excellence around processes, information, expectations in a way that engages talent because we believe it's a virtuous circle of engaging talent, engaging hearts and minds in them authoring the plan, whether that be the plan for the job or the bird or the region or the company is what motivates people, what inspires people. So we believe that's a, a virtuous circle. And then that actually is what our culture is if we're doing those things consistently. Mm -hmm. So you talk about expectations. How, how are those expectations developed? Role-specific expectations? Is that sure, what sure. I mean, you, have to, you said you want to supervise expectations. Does those expectations come from management? Are they collaboratively created? I mean, obviously you have you've run your company long enough to, to develop certain metrics, but how did you start creating those expectations? Yeah, so virtually everything we do in construction, we do as a team. Whether that be a project or a burg or a region, there's a team of people that are coming together. The leadership methodology, our approach says, let's collectively agree on what the vision is for this project or this burg. Let's come to agreement on that. There's responsibilities of an area lead, a Berg leader to create his plan, his or her plan. And they need to do that with their key leadership team in the Berg. Out of that clarity becomes clarity to expectations of the roles to accomplish that. Or if it's a project, a project, no two projects are alike. So we need to look at each of those projects and the team that exists and the timing to build it, use that to drive the clarity of expectations. It, it's more akin to what folks would know as situational leadership because every project is different. Every dynamic is different. So it's more situational leadership where those expectations are clarified given the situation. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, um, you've been at this a while. If you had to go back and give advice to your younger self, what would that look like? Patience, for sure. You can do all things, just not all at once. I think we push the organization, we push people pretty hard to innovate, to move forward. I think selecting your timing is key. At the same time, maybe if we didn't push so hard, we wouldn't have accomplished so much. That was probably a more of a personal thing than it is an organizational thing to have a little patience with folks, but that'd be what I would what comes to mind. Yeah. So you're a very busy guy. I mean, you, you have these sporting things that you're doing. Work is busy because you're running an organization. What are the habits and sort of routines that help you stay grounded? Yeah, you know, learn. my dad passed away when I was young. I joined the service at 17. And one of those fortuitous things that probably was one of the better things for me in life, I learned the art of discipline in the military, the art of getting up early and creating a consistent routine, 
which have kind of stuck with me. Played college football and athletics give you a sense of routine. I got married young, had kids, which will drive you. I've always enjoyed athletics. So my routine is I get up early in the morning. We live on a farm and have horses. Horses need to be fed. The stalls need to be cleaned. So I'm up early, 4, 4.30, do that. And then I typically get on the trainer or the treadmill and get a workout in before work. And then I'm off to work. And I think getting up early, starting your day, I watched a speech of a, I think it was a Navy Admiral once. And he talked about just first thing you need to do is throw the sheets back and kick your feet out put them on the floor get up and get started i think that the discipline of getting moving and getting in that routine is, is a big deal for folks and not getting in that headspace that starts to question everything just throw the sheets and kick your feet out and get them on the floor and get moving i think that inertia that momentum you just need to learn that that that's key and stay out of that headspace that has you questioning everything you got plenty of time to think about things while you're while you're making progress. Yeah, no, sounds good. What does the future look like for you? Well, we're excited about these times. We think kind of a little industry context. Most of our competitors are baby boomers that started these businesses post-World War II, Vietnam era type folks that it were kind of the building structures, the amount of buildings and the and concrete as a of construction has really multiplied. So most of these owners, 30,000 competitors are in their late 60s or early 70s. So we're, we're relatively young as an organization and we think consolidation is a big part of what's going to happen here over the next 10 years. So as we see these aging owners figuring out generational transition, generational succession, we think there's a lot, lot of opportunities for us. Even though most of our growth has came organically over the years, we put together an M&A group and are doing inorganic or acquisitive growth now. And we think that there's a lot of those opportunities going to line up. And there aren't that many buyers in, in this space. So there's only a few strategic players that are in that acquisition mode. So we're excited about that future. We think there's 50 plus cities that fit our model. So we think we're less than halfway to the achievable marketplace, market penetration that's out there, just doing what we're doing over and over and over. Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, share with our listeners? No, I think that's it. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, tell the Lithco story and, and Bob's global story a little bit. So really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you so much, Rob. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.